2 Samuel chapter 4. When Ishbosheth, Saul's son, heard that Abner had died at Hebron, his courage failed, and all Israel was dismayed. Now Saul's son had two men that were captains of raiding bands. The name of one was Baana, and the name of the other Rechab, sons of Rimen, a man of Benjamin from Beeroth. For Beeroth also was counted part of Benjamin. The Barathites fled to Gideon and have been sojourners there to this day. Jonathan, the son of Saul, had a son who was crippled in his feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel, and his nurse took him up and fled. And as she fled in her haste, he fell and became lame. And his name was Mephibosheth. Now the sons of Rimmon, the Barathite, Rechab, and Baana set out, and about at the heat of the day, they came to the house of Ishbosheth as he was taking his noonday rest. And they came into the midst of the house as if to get wheat, and they stabbed him in the stomach. Then Rechab and Baana, his brother, escaped. When they came into the house as he lay on his bed in his bedroom, they struck him and put him to death and beheaded him. They took his head and went by the way of the Arabah all night and brought the head of Ishbosheth to David at Hebron. And they said to the king, Here is the head of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, your enemy, who sought your life. The Lord has avenged my lord the king this day on Saul and on his offspring. But David answered Rechab and Bana his brother, the sons of Rimmon the Barathite, As the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life out of every adversity, when one told me, Behold, Saul is dead, and he thought he was bringing good news, I seized him and killed him at Ziklag, which was the reward I gave him for his news. How much more, when wicked men have killed a righteous man in his own house on his bed, shall I not now require his blood at your hand and destroy you from the face of the earth? And David commanded his young men, and they killed them and cut off their hands and feet and hanged them beside the pool at Hebron. But they took the head of Ishbosheth and buried it in the tomb of Abner at Hebron. This is the word of the Lord. His word endures forever. Wonderful. Would you please pray with me? God, thank you for this day that we are enjoying today. God, thank you for the beautiful creation that we get to live in and experience every day. Lord, we are, we are blessed to live where we live, to experience sunshine almost every single day to have mountains and ocean that just remind us of your glory, of your artistic mind, your creativity, your wisdom, and certainly your power in speaking all of this into existence. As Ryan began our service today, acknowledging the greatness of the Lord, we, we do acknowledge you are great and you are mighty and you are worthy to be praised. God, as we've sung songs today, we, we just ask that those were a sweet-smelling aroma to you, that our worship through song blessed you and ministered to you today. God, as we fellowshiped with one another and we've sought to love each other and encourage each other and pray for each other, Lord, we, we ask that that has also honored you and that it's built us up in our familial love for one another as brothers and sisters in the family of God. Lord, as we now turn our attention to your holy word, 
God, we ask that you would quiet our hearts. God, that you would still our minds. Lord, that you would free us of any and every distraction so that we might be able to hear from you. God, we believe that this this book that we hold in our hands is more than a book. That it is inspired Holy Scripture. We believe that these words lead us to eternal life as they lead us to your son, Jesus. And so, God, we take your word infinitely seriously here. And, God, we ask that we would honor your word and honor you by hearing and doing the things that your word commands us. So, God, please bless us now in our time of studying the scriptures and hearing from you. Would you minister to each and every person? God, would you speak a fit word into each of our hearts today? We love you, Lord. We want to hear from you. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Good morning, everyone. Please be seated. Well, as you noticed here, I'm sure, another key player is dead. And his assailants have also been executed after they murdered him. And for me, so far, the book of 2 Samuel has been feeling a little bit like one of those murder mysteries. Where it's like, you know, somebody dies in some mysterious circumstances and everybody's trying to figure out who's behind this. Who is the person responsible for killing this individual? And then before they can even get an answer to that, somebody else shows up dead. Somebody else shows up dead. Another person's missing. Someone else dies. That's kind of how 2 Samuel has felt. All of the big players in Israel keep on winding up dead. First it was Saul, along with three of his four sons. Then it was Azahel, then it was Abner, and now it is Ishbosheth. When will the madness stop? Well, thankfully, the answer is that largely the madness stops here. The events of 2 Samuel 4 effectively end the civil war that's going on in Israel. In the next chapter, David is going to finally be recognized as the king over the nation of Israel. So he'll be king now over the land of Judah, and he'll be recognized as king over the land of Israel. In effect, he'll be recognized now as king over all of the kingdom that Saul once reigned over. But first is chapter 4. Let's look together at this grisly scene. Now last week we read about the assassination of Abner. Abner was Ishbosheth's leading general. He was the commander of Israel's army, their forces, and he was assassinated in chapter 3. I titled last week's sermon, The Downfall of the House of Saul. And the reason I titled it that way is because as I pointed out last week, Abner, the man who was assassinated, this general, he was the real power in Israel at that time. No, he was not the king, but he was the true power in Israel. Well, with him gone, Ishbosheth, the king of Israel, is largely defenseless. And it's really only a matter of time now until he himself is going to die and lose his throne. And as you can see, it really didn't take that much time. Look again at verse 1. 
When Ishbosheth, Saul's son, heard that Abner had died at Hebron, his courage failed and all Israel was dismayed. So check it out. When news of Abner's death reaches the king, Ishbosheth, his courage failed. What does that mean? Well, it means he lost his backbone. It means that his strength left him. His his courage now is completely gone. He does not have resolve anymore to keep up the fight. He's terrified of his future prospects. And the reason for that is clear. The one man in Israel, Abner, who had the strength, who had the military genius and skill to actually put up a fight against David and his strong army in the south, that one man, Abner, is dead. He's gone. So Ishbosheth feels defenseless. He's got no one else to turn to, and he is completely distraught. And this is such a powerful reminder to each and every one of us that this is how all of us ultimately will feel if we put our ultimate hope and trust in any person. Or to say that differently, in anything other than God. See, David, who is Ishbosheth's counterpart in the south, David, as many of you know, he went through many of his own setbacks and low points in his life. He was on the run for his life. He was the one that was on the defensive. He was the one that was weak and vulnerable many times and for many years. And yet, remarkably, David over and over again was able to find his strength in God. We actually read that language in 1 Samuel, that he was able to find his strength in God. But we never found that in Saul, King Saul, and we don't see that in his son Ishbosheth either. That, that they're able to say, even when everything else is falling apart in my life, I know God is with me, I know God is for me, and I can strengthen myself in him. See, we need to know, family, that, that everything and everyone in this world is subject to let us down. That does not mean we don't trust people. That doesn't mean that we don't lean on people at times, but it does mean that our ultimate hope and trust is never in another person. You might have wonderful parents, and praise God if you do, but if you think that they can meet every need and deliver on everything that you need in your life for you, you're going to get let down. You might have a wonderful spouse, but you can't put the weight of of needing everything from that person on their shoulders because they're human and they're going to let you down. If you and I are really going to make it through life, and listen, and death, with your courage intact. You have to have your hope set on something unshakable. And the scriptures remind us over and over and over again that it is only the Lord who can be rightly called our rock. He is the rock of our salvation. He will see you through every trial, every hardship, every turn in the road, and he's the only one who can see us through the greatest challenge we'll all face, which is the challenge of death. Ishbosheth here has lost his sense of strength and security because Abner is dead and his courage failed. But Ishbosheth, as we read, he's not the only one in Israel who is overwhelmed by the news of Abner's death. It says in verse 1, and all Israel was dismayed. 
The whole nation now is, is throwing up their arms. What are we going to do? Abner, our general, is dead. We have nobody capable of leading our army. Not only that, we learned in the last chapter that David's army has been steadily winning more and more of this civil war. They're taking more and more territory. They're having more and more wins. And so Israel has been on the decline and now Abner, the general, is killed. So the question in Israel must have been, what hope is there for us? What hope is there for the future of the nation? Now, in World War II, once the Nazis realized that defeat was imminent and the Allied troops were coming closer and closer to Berlin, or even before that, as they just started realizing that, man, the Allied troops were taking more and more of Europe back, lots of key people in the military and especially in the government started trying to make plans to set themselves up after the war. Made plans to get out of Europe. Some of them made their way to Central and South America. They made plans to start cooperating with the Allies so that after the Allies won the war, maybe they wouldn't experience such bad consequences. This sort of thing happens all the time. When an army is, is, is recognizing they're going to be defeated, the, the military and the government leaders oftentimes start saying, what can I do to set myself up after the downfall of our army and our nation? And that's what's happening here in chapter 4. The writing's on the wall. Israel is going to be defeated. And so key people in Israel begin to make plans. What's my move going to be when David and his army take over? Well, we're introduced in verses 2 and 3 to two leaders. They're not the highest ranking leaders, but they're, they're listed as captains of raiding bands, which meant that these guys did lead out uh, military units on behalf of the king, and they would go and they would make raids on some of the surrounding uh, nations and, and towns and villages, and they would take property, and it would be a way to continue to support the nation. So they had troops at their disposal. They had access to the leadership of the nation. And these two men, again, are introduced to us in verses 2 and 3. Now, as a reader, knowing that Abner's gone, and knowing that Ishbosheth has lost his courage. He's completely powerless to do anything. The introduction of these two men in verses 2 and 3 makes you first wonder, oh, is this the solution? Are, are these two guys going to be the answer to the crisis in Israel? Are these two men going to be the solution? Are they going to take the reins and, and bring control to, uh, or, or leadership, I should say, to the nation? Will they lead the house of Saul? After Ishbosheth is gone. Well, before the author tells us the story and answers that question, he does this weird little pivot, it feels, in verse 4, because he wants to remind us that there is one other person in Israel who could, at least in theory, take up the reins of the kingdom after Ishbosheth's departure. Look again at verse 4. It says, Jonathan, the son of Saul, had a son who was crippled in his feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel. And his nurse took him up and fled, and as she fled in her haste, he fell, he fell and became lame. And his name was Mephibosheth. Now, Mephibosheth is Saul's grandson, as we just read there. He's the son of Saul, or uh, son of Jonathan, rather. Jonathan was the crown prince in Israel. 
So Jonathan should have taken the throne after Saul, but he was killed in battle. And Mephibosheth is Jonathan's son. So this is a very uh, uh, likely candidate for the throne. He's a legitimate heir to the throne. And he's still alive, and the author makes us aware of that. But in the very same breath that the author alerts us to this legitimate heir to the throne, he rules him out. He shows us that this is not who Israel's future will run through. And there's really two reasons for that. Number one, he's too young to lead Israel in a time of crisis like this. They need a military man who can lead them, and he's about 12 years old. But reason two is is also told to us he's crippled in his feet. So he cannot be the strong military leader who can go out and fight Israel's battles, which is what they need right now. And so Mephibosheth, although he is alive and he's a legitimate heir, he is not going to be able to take on this role. And so he's ruled out. And the author then picks back up the story of these two men that are uh, given to us in verses 2 and 3. And we discover that it is the sons of Rimon the Berethite who hold the future of Israel in their hands. And rather than stepping up and stepping into Abner's role and leading Israel for Ishbosheth, they concoct another plan. And their plan is, let's defect to David. Here's their story again in verse 5. Now the sons of Rimon the Berethite, Rechab and Benah set out, and about the heat of the day they came to the house of Ishbosheth as he was taking his noonday rest. And they came into the midst of the house as if to get wheat, and they stabbed him in the stomach. We'll stop there. Now, many cultures throughout history, and some even today, practice a noonday rest or a siesta, right? Uh, why work during the heat of the day and exhaust ourselves? Let's just go take a nap for an hour after lunch and recharge our batteries and we'll go out and continue working. This is what is going on here. Now, as Americans, we should note that we fully embrace that practice through kindergarten. And then after that, we're just totally done with the siesta, right? For us, it's like, why take a nap after lunch when we can just have another cup of coffee or a five-hour energy drink? But I cannot be the only one who thinks that the idea of turning off the lights for 45 minutes and pulling the cots back out sounds awesome, right? You guys remember that from kindergarten? And what's so sad when you're a kid, right, is like, and this is true of so many blessings you have as a child, you don't see them for what they are, right? In kindergarten, I hated that. It was the worst part of the entire day. And I just lay on my cot, just like squirming, like, when is this misery going to end? Then you get older and you're tired and exhausted and you're like, I would give anything if every single day I had peace and quiet for 45 minutes and I could lay on a cot. That sounds awesome. But this is what's going on in this culture. This is in the Middle East or the ancient Near East. It's incredibly hot there in Israel. And so they would take a rest in the middle of the day if, if they were able to. And so Ishbosheth the king is doing that. He's taking his noonday rest in his home. And as he's sleeping, uh, Rechab and Banah enter his home 
under the pretense of going and getting wheat. So probably in the royal home at this point, because the royal palace was not developed yet, they probably stored supplies there and had a lot of different functions going on. But they're coming into his, his, his home under the pretense of securing some wheat. And so that's how they get in, but that's not what they're there for, obviously. They end up going in and they stab the king in his stomach. Now, verse 7 gives us greater detail. We learn there that there's no struggle. Ishbosheth is completely defenseless because he's asleep. He's sleeping on his bed and they stab him in the stomach. And after they do that, they behead the king. And after removing his head, they take it to David. In an honor-shame culture, beheading the king, this was a way of utterly shaming him and his house forever. Now, curiously, Ishbosheth suffers the exact same fate that his father Saul suffered. Saul died with a mortal stomach wound, and then after he died, he was beheaded by the Philistines, who took his head as a trophy and also as evidence that King Saul was dead. And here, Ishbosheth suffers the exact same fate. A mortal a stomach wound, and then his head is removed, and it's taken as a trophy and as evidence that he's actually been killed. These two brothers escape the palace, and they waste no time in bringing Ishbosheth's head to David at Hebron. And this was their plan all along. Again, they had calculated when they realized, man, defeat is imminent, they decided we're going over to David. And then they ask themselves the question, well, how could we possibly get into David's good graces? We've been his enemies for years. And they conjured up this plan. We'll just kill Ishbosheth. We'll go over to David with his head, and we will enter into his good graces. Let's pick up the story on the second part of verse 7. They took his head and went by the way of the Arabah all night and brought the head of Ishbosheth to David at Hebron. And they said to the king, Here is the head of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, your enemy who sought your life. The Lord has avenged my Lord the king this day on Saul and on his offspring. Now, notice that they try to cloak the assassination of their king in the language of doing the will of God. Did you see that? They say, Hey, David, guess what? The Lord has avenged my Lord the king, or avenged you this day on Saul and on his offspring. In other words, they're saying, our assassination of our king was God's way of dealing with your enemies. So you should praise God over this. You should rejoice in his provision of two strapping young soldiers like us who who implemented God's will for you. So this is how they announce it to David. But as we read, that is not how David receives this news. He doesn't see it this way at all. David has consistently demonstrated that violence against Saul and his family is not the way to bring about David's kingdom. God's will for David will come through God's own intervention. So here's David's response in verse 9. But David answered Rechab and Benah, his brother, the sons of Rimon, the Berethite, As the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life out of every adversity, when one told me, behold, Saul is dead and thought he was bringing good news, I seized him and killed him at Ziklag, which was the reward I gave him for his news. I wonder what these brothers were thinking when David said that. 
I bet the hair on their necks stood up. I bet butterflies were in their stomach. Their heart was palpitating. David does not, he does not interpret these events the way that these two guys wanted him to. David points out that it has been the Lord who has delivered him out of every adversity in the past. That's what he says in verse 9. In other words, David looks at these two guys and he says, I don't need you guys to bring about God's will in my life. God himself is sufficient for the job. Thank you very much. He's the one who has seen me through every trial. He's the one who has established me already as the king of Judah. And he's the one who's going to bring all of his promises to fruition. Now, these two brothers are not the first ones to learn this lesson the hard way. David recalls the Amalekite from chapter 1, who went, he was an opportunist as well, just like these two guys. And when he found Saul and his sons dead on Mount Gilboa in battle, he ended up taking Saul's crown and his royal armlet, and he fled to David and told David that he himself was responsible for killing Saul. And just like these guys, he thought, of course David's going to love that. Of course, David's going to receive this as good news and handsomely reward me for killing his enemy. And David, as he says here, had that man executed as a reward. And so, that man who expected to receive a reward received a death sentence for his wicked deed. Why then should these guys expect anything different? Well, they're not going to get anything different. Verse 11, how much more, David says, When wicked men have killed a righteous man in his own house, on his bed, shall I not now require his blood at your hand and destroy you from the earth? And David commanded his young men and they killed them and cut off their hands and feet and hanged them beside the pool at Hebron. But they took the head of Ishbosheth and buried it in the tomb of Abner at Hebron. These two men meant to shame Ishbosheth. And at the end of the day, it's they who are shamed. David's men take off their hands and their feet and publicly hang their dead, mutilated bodies at a pool in Hebron, which, again, in an honor shame culture, is the worst way you could die, just publicly humiliated, bringing shame on your name and your family's name forever. They have truly reaped what they've sown here. And Ishbosheth, the man that they intended to shame, is the one who actually, as the story concludes, is given the honorable death, a proper burial, at least with his head, being buried properly in the tomb of Abner. Now this chapter that we've just considered together ends with every single one of the obstacles to David receiving all that God had promised him removed. Every single obstacle that stood in the way between David inheriting what God promised him has now been removed. All of the candidates for Saul's throne have been wiped out. Saul and three out of his four sons on Mount Gilboa. Abner and now Ishbosheth. And here's the crazy thing, you guys. David had a hand in none of it. They've all been killed, but David was not responsible For any of it. David knew that the Lord would cut off every one of his enemies from the face of the earth. That's 1 Samuel 20 15. The Lord would cut off every single one of his enemies from the face of the earth. And guess what? God did. 
And nobody would ever be able to say of David that he usurped the throne in Israel, that he took something that was not rightfully his. David was able to stay faithful, keep his integrity intact, just trust the Lord and follow the Lord. And God has brought him now into the promises that he had given him. David is remarkable in scripture, not because he's a perfect person. We've seen many mistakes in David's life already, and we're going to get to the worst ones still in the future. He's remarkable not because he's a perfect man. He's remarkable because he's a wonderful example of a person who just had a resilient faith. That over and over and over again, if he failed, he went back to God. If he succeeded, he gave credit to God. If he faced a trial, he turned to the Lord. He's a man who demonstrated faithfulness to the Lord, going to him over and over and over again. David was a person that knew that the fulfillment of God's promises was not dependent on his own actions, but on God's. David was a person who rested in God's faithfulness. And this is one of the most powerful lessons that we learn from the life of David. What God promises he will do, he will do. We don't have to worry or fret. God's promises are not dependent on us. Okay, listen, they're not dependent on our strength. They're not dependent on our goodness or our righteousness or our own faithfulness. They're not dependent on our wisdom and our ability to figure everything out. And they're certainly not dependent on our scheming or our sinfulness, which are the shortcuts that many characters in David's life had tried to take. God's promises are dependent on, listen, God's character. And God is faithful and he will never ever break a promise. He will bring everyone to pass. And when you really believe that deep in your heart, your life begins to to demonstrate this, this posture of resting and trusting in the Lord. And it's really remarkable when you see people live this way. That no matter what new tidal wave or tsunami comes and hits them, rather than running from God or or being completely upended, there's just a sort of peace about people like this. There's this rest in the Lord and this trust in the Lord that they have. When we believe that God is faithful, when we trust in God's character, we can, like David patiently endure all the trials and all the tribulations that this world can bring our way, knowing that God will do what he says he will do. In a room this size, it's, there's just no way that there's not some buddy or some people here today that, that are going through a season of life right now where you are, if you're honest, you are doubting God's faithfulness to what his word promises to you. And maybe you wouldn't even want to admit that, but that's the reality. You are doubting. You're saying, I just don't know if I can believe this anymore because of how I feel and what I'm going through. There may be some who are hiding and covering sin in your life. Maybe you've been doing it for a long time. There are things that you are not bringing out into the light. And they're destroying you. 
They're objectively destroying you right now, and you know that. But you will not bring them into the light. You will not confess them and make them known because you believe that if you do that, if you choose that option, it'll bring horrible consequences and it'll be the end of you. But the word of God says in Proverbs 28, 13, that whoever conceals or covers or hides their transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. So what God promises to you is that if you will bring that sin forward to him, and in the book of James, if we confess our sins one to another, there's healing. If you'll bring the sin forward to God, and if you'll open up instead of hiding and bring that out into the light with other brothers and sisters in Christ that you can trust, God says, that's the road to mercy. That's where my blessing comes back into your life. That's where my favor comes back into your life. That's where good things begin to happen in your life again. But you're doubting. You're saying, I know God's word says that, but that can't, that's not how it's going to work out for me. That can't be true for me. Friend, that's a lie from Satan. It's a lie from the enemy. God will be faithful to his word. And he's inviting you. He's saying, confess your sins to me. I want to heal you. I want to forgive you. I want to bring life back into your life. There might be others here today that you're getting to the end of putting God first in your life. You've been doing it for a long time. You think you have. And I've, I've been praying and I've been going to church and I've been reading my Bible and I've tried to serve the Lord. But I'm about to throw the towel in because it seems like everything in my life is getting worse and not better right now. Maybe you're looking at your finances right now and you're saying like, we, we are at the end of our rope and we've been praying and I've been putting in applications and I've sought a promotion and I've taken all the steps that I can and nothing is working out right now. And you know what, God, if this is what following you looks like, I'm done. And you're right there. You're ready to just throw in the towel. Or maybe it's not about money. Maybe it's about your most important relationships. Your marriage has been on the rocks. And you guys can't sort it out. You can't fix it. Or maybe it's your children right now and it's a complete mess. And you're saying to yourself, you know what? Maybe I should just throw in the towel and walk away. Maybe this is it for me. Maybe I'm done. But what does Jesus say? In Matthew 6.33, Jesus says this. He says, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And he says, and all of these things will be added to you. And in context, what are the these things? The these things are all of our earthly, temporal concerns. And, And so you can listen to your own voices You can listen to the lies of the enemy or you can be like David and you can say, you know what, God, your character is faithfulness. You are faithful from generation to generation. And if you, Jesus, tell me that so long as I put you first and I seek your righteousness, I live for you in your kingdom, you're telling me as long as I do that, these things will get sorted one way or the other. You'll see me through this. I'm going to trust you, Jesus. I'm going to carry on for another day, another week, another month, another year. And I'm going to see how you're going to work it out, Jesus, because I can't see it right now, but I'm going to trust. Family, like David, we can trust in the Lord to keep his word. He is faithful. He never, ever breaks his promises. So don't, stay, don't give up. Remain faithful. Hold on for another day. Call out to the Lord. Depend on him and watch 
him work. Now I want to share one final reflection from this story that really, really stood out to me. And then we'll close the sermon this morning. One thing that is really clear regarding these two brothers is that they terribly miscalculated how David would respond to what they did. Right? I mean, it's right there in the text. (laughs) They did not see it going this way, right? They terribly miscalculated how David would feel and what David ultimately wanted. And we can understand why. If you, if you put yourself in their shoes, you have to admit there's, there's a certain level of wisdom, I'll call it earthly wisdom and earthly logic to what these two brothers were thinking. They're looking at the situation and they're saying, Ishbosheth is David's enemy. And Ishbosheth is the one thing standing in the way of David becoming king over everything. Therefore, if we remove Ishbosheth and we come and make ourselves loyal to David, he's going to be happy about that. We got rid of your enemy. We solved the problem for you. Everything is good now. We're here to serve you. You are our king and you are our Lord. That seems to make sense. But it does not work out that way. And the thing that we've learned about David through these, these, these chapters of his life is that David does not operate based on earthly wisdom alone. He is governed by a whole different set of principles. We can call them spiritual principles. And so what that means in real time and in real real relationships in David's life is that it is really, really hard to know what he wants unless he tells you. As we've talked about in this series, David is God's chosen one. Or to put it into biblical language, he's God's anointed one. And the Hebrew word for that expression is Messiah. In the Greek, the word becomes Christ. And so David is a type of Christ. He's actually sort of the prototype of King Jesus who would come on the scene. Jesus Christ being God's ultimate anointed one. And here's what we should see in the story of these two brothers. Just as human reasoning led these two men to fail in discerning what the will of David was, human wisdom will lead us to fail in discerning what the will of the Lord is. Okay, I'm going to say that one more time. Just as human reasoning led these two men to fail in discerning what the will of David was, Human reasoning, human wisdom will lead us to fail in discerning what the will of the Lord is. What we need is we need God himself to tell us what his will is. To reveal to us what his mind is, what his thoughts are, what his heart is. Otherwise, we are utterly helpless at getting it right. I mean, how many people do you know? And maybe this is somebody here today. How many people do you know that think like this? They say, good people get into heaven. And I'm doing better than most. And so I'm probably a shoe in I'm not afraid of dying. I'm not afraid of judgment. I'm not afraid of God. I haven't killed anybody. I haven't done anything heinous like that. I'm better than most people. There are plenty of well-meaning people who think that way. And, and isn't there a certain level of earthly logic to that? 
Like you wouldn't just go, yeah, it's, heaven is for like the most wicked people and hell is where all the good people go. That doesn't add up. That doesn't make sense to us. But the truth of the matter is actually more nuanced than that. Yes, there's a sense in which good people are in heaven and wicked people are in hell. But deeper than that is that forgiven people are in heaven. That's the only kind of people that are in heaven. Every single person in heaven is guilty before God or was guilty before God for the sins that they committed in their own life. And the only reason they're in heaven is not because they were better than most people and God grades on the curve and they got in. The only reason they're in heaven is because God grades by grace and he forgives the undeserving in Christ and that's how we get to heaven. That's how salvation works. Here's Galatians 2.16. The apostle Paul writes this, he says, yet we know a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Your goodness is not good enough. You can't get to heaven that way. We need grace. And so Paul reminds us in Ephesians 2, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works so that no one may boast. Who would have ever known that was the way that it worked unless God told us? We would have all just assumed it's about just being slightly better than our neighbor, which would have led to unbridled pride and looking down on other people because they're not as moral and good and righteous as I am. But God wouldn't have it that way. He levels the playing field and says, you're all guilty because of your sin. And the only ones who are going to know me and enjoy me and go, go to heaven are those who humble themselves and trust in the provision that is in Christ. There are people who will say, surely God wants me to be happy. And I'm not happy in this marriage anymore. Therefore, God supports my decision to divorce and to go find something better. There's a kernel of truth in that way of thinking. And the kernel of truth is this. God does want you to be happy. Infinitely happy to be exact. In Psalm 1611, one of my favorite Psalms, David writes, in your presence is fullness of joy and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. God is saying, I want to make you infinitely and eternally happy. So there's a kernel of truth in that way of thinking. Not to mention, it really speaks to our own heart. I mean, who wants to just persist in a miserable marriage? Like, nobody wants to do that. But the problem with that way of thinking is that you and I are too sinful and we're too short-sighted to understand what will ultimately make us happy. That's the problem with every single human. And so against all that we would naturally think, the Bible actually teaches us that holiness is the way to happiness. Holiness, meaning this, being set apart in Christ and being set apart for Christ. That that is actually the pathway to experiencing true happiness. Being in Christ by faith and living for Christ by following his word. And what does his word tell us about divorce and marriage? It tells us that just being unhappy is not grounds for divorce. It tells us that at the end of the day, 
first and foremost, what we're called to in our marriages, friends, is faithfulness. Because every one of our marriages is a picture. It's like a little parable, a short story of the good news of the gospel. And the good news of the gospel is that we are the bride of Christ and he's the groom and he will never, ever, ever leave us or forsake us. And so the path of holiness is a path that says, I'm going to be committed and faithful here. And I'm going to trust that God will work this out. And I'm going to trust that this is the path to ultimate happiness because it's holiness and obedience. Let me summarize this way. Left to our own intuitions and to human reasoning, we would all fail over and over again at understanding God's heart and God's will. The prophet Isaiah reminds us that God's thoughts are way beyond ours. He says, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. We have no way of accessing the mind of God and the thoughts of God unless he tells us, unless he reveals it to us. In 1 Corinthians 2.11, here's what we read. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. So Paul says, listen, it is only God himself, God the Holy Spirit, who can understand the mind of God, the thoughts of God. But here's the connection and here's the great news for you if you're a Christian here today. God has given his spirit to live inside of us so that we actually can understand the thoughts of God and the mind of God. And what's more, God the Holy Spirit has shared his mind and his heart with us in the word of God. Here's what 2 Peter says, verse, chapter 1, verse 20. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Friends, I say all of this to say that there are many well-meaning people non-Christians and professing Christians who feel confident that they know the mind of the Lord, that they know what will make God happy, that they know how they should live, but they've arrived at those conclusions by relying on what makes sense to them. And this will lead to many terrible miscalculations and ultimately to their own destruction. Proverbs 14.12 says, There is a way that seems right to a man but its end is the way of death. My prayer for us as a church this week, as I've been just meditating on this idea, has been, Lord, would you help us to increasingly be a people and a congregation, a spiritual family that does not base our thinking about you, does not make, base our decisions on what we feel naturally, but would we increasingly be a people who are immersed in the word of God and who are allowing God's word alone to inform us as to who God is and what is the mind of the Lord. This is the only way forward for us, church. 
And so may it be. Amen. Amen. Let's pray.